Psalm 19 in your Bibles. If you want to turn ahead, we'll read some verses and pray together. Psalm 19. And we begin at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, their commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Father, help us tonight as we take time to consider your word. And as we take time to consider it, Father, that you will speak to our hearts. Open our eyes, recalibrate our hearts, Lord, to the truth and to your will. So we thank you for these people, this time, their faithfulness. Please help us to hear what the Spirit saith to the church in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look again tonight, verse, Psalm 19, and in particular, a single statement in this text that I think all of us in this room need to take care to hear and to heed often in our Christian lives. Verse 8 says this, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, the main statement in the midst of this magnificent chapter, by the way, that I encourage you to read tonight when you get home, the main statement that I want us to consider tonight is the very simple sentence at the beginning of verse 8. Look at it again. It says, The statutes of the Lord are right. And then it says, Rejoicing the heart. Now, folks, we are living in a time, in a place, in a day, in an age where people talk constantly, incessantly about what's right and their rights. Women's rights and gay rights and the right to health care and right to work and a right to equality, right to education, animal rights. There's uh, immigrants' rights, a right to own a house. And there's an ever-increasing sort of emphasis, if you will, and list, really, of personal individual rights that are heralded in our society far beyond the scope of the wonderfully crafted bill of rights that most of us were born under gratefully there are now all kinds of so-called rights that could just as easily be called wrongs if you will when i was a, a youth pastor the beastie boys came out with a song called fight for the right to party and while the song and the songwriters will tell you it was meant to be an ironic parody of young people who claimed that they had to write the right to do stupid stuff, young people thought it was serious and it was their anthem and it became a huge, huge hit. Unironically became a huge hit because they really did think and they really did sing with this song that it was their right to party, to party, you know, the song anyway. You know, everybody wants their rights. Expansive, unlimited, unchallenged rights. They want them to exist in some sort of moral vacuum. In other words, they will say something like, I have my rights, but if you ask them, okay, you have this right to do this, right to do this, who gave you the right? They really don't know. Some of them will say, well, the government gives me my rights. And that's interesting because the government is not moral 
And if the government changes, as it did in Cuba in 1959, as it did in China in 1949, as it did in Iran in 1979, so that if a government is the one who grants you your rights, and that's what you're holding to, then the government can also take them away. And if you say, well, Pastor, our rights are better because our rights come from the American government. That's not even accurate. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, that was written by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence and seconded by James Madison in the Bill of Rights. So again, there's this very hypocritical attitude and posture in America, a dangerous approach to what's right and my personal rights in our society that it basically wants all these rights, all kinds of rights, individual rights for themselves and allegedly for others, extend, extend to all people all the rights that you can think of, you can have just about any right that you want, they say, except for one. There's one thing that they believe that nobody has the right to, including God himself. Nobody, they say, has the right to be right. Let me say that again. Nobody has the right to say that they're, they're, they are right or that they're right. And the problem with that philosophy is that it's wrong. It's dead wrong. One of the great root problems in America and our society, and it presents one of the great challenges of us being faithful and serving God as Christians, concerns the issue of moral absolutism. You know, are some actions and some beliefs absolutely right? And can you say that they are? Are some actions absolutely wrong? The idea of moral absolute stands in contrast to moral relativism. Some forms of which say that nothing, literally nothing, is truly right or wrong. Even the mildest form of moral relativism is a danger because it holds that people can always disagree about what's right and wrong. In fact, you should disagree about what's really right or wrong. And nobody, therefore, has the right to be absolutely right. This is the foundation, sadly, now of the entire American educational system. From Head Start to graduate school, it is relentlessly pushed on our young people, who I love to teach in high school and junior high, and supported by our media. Who are you to judge? Who are you? It's my truth. Tolerance equals acceptance. If you don't accept it, it's not real tolerance. Who says that this is right or that this is wrong? Nobody has a corner on the truth. Right? You hear this stuff. What's the meaning of right in an ever-changing society? And of course, in reading and hearing these kinds of sentiments over and over again, I'm reminded of, and I personally take comfort in, the words of Psalm 19. Because here, beloved, is a simple statement in the inerrant, perfect Word of God that tells us of at least one thing that in fact is right. Look at it again. David said in verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. Not partially right, not right in some countries or some dispensations, not right for some people, but exclusive of others, that would describe the statutes of men, all statutes of men. 
What David is talking about is the Bible, the Word of God. This whole chapter is talking about the Word of God. And it includes, by the way, the, word, the, the statute of the Lord to write, it includes a certain promise. It says in verse 8, this, look at it, the statutes of the Lord are right. And then it says, rejoicing the heart. You'll notice in this amazing text, by the way, Psalm 19, that every declarative statement in the text about the Bible is followed by a resulting promise. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Therefore, what happens? Well, it converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What? Making wise the simple. The commandment of the Lord is pure. What? Enlightening the eyes. And so it goes so that the adjective describing the Scripture is followed by a verb sort of revealing that very distinct promise. And it is true. In fact, it is distinctively and specifically true that the statutes of the Lord are right. Thus, rejoicing a believer's heart. In other words, because the Bible is right, specifically because it's right, it brings joy to our hearts, to man's heart. And why is that so, Pastor? Why does the rightness of this book rejoice our hearts? Well, let's consider that for a minute. One reason. It's because it gives us the right direction, obviously. The Bible reveals, in other words, what is right with regard to the path that we ought to all trod or be on. And why does that make me happy? Why does that rejoice my heart, as the Bible says? Which it does, but all you have to do is think about it for a moment. If you're an, on a journey, an important journey, and you come to a fork in the road, and one path, um, you don't know this yet, but one path ultimately leads to sin and destruction and heartache and pain, the other path leads to joy, blessing, and even eternal life. What good is it if there's a sign at the fork of the road that says, take the road that's right for you? What if there's a sign at the fork of the road that says, take the road that feels good? It depends on how you feel. Or, don't worry about what road you take, just long as you're sincere. Just be sincere and mean it and take the road. Or maybe Yogi Berra is standing there at the fork and he says, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Okay, that doesn't help. It's not going to rejoice your heart. You're going to be at that fork and you know one road leads to destruction, one road leads to blessing and eternal life, but you don't know there's not much in life more disheartening than not knowing or being on the wrong road. I remember years ago we had a youth conference. I used to take the teenagers for decades, a couple decades, and I passed I was driving, we had two vans, and I passed, I was leading, passed the exit on the first night of our hotel, and went down some long, all 26 of us, I just led them down this wrong, long country road into a little town in Georgia called Rocky Bottom or, or Bug Tussle or something, I don't remember, but it was in the middle of nowhere. And I'm driving, and I said, you know, according to the directions, we didn't have uh, any kind of a Google Earth or anything, you know? We didn't have maps. We had maps that you fold out on the dash while you're driving. Very safe. And uh, I said, the hotel is supposed to be right there. And the only thing that was right there was this tiny little shack with a great big Confederate flag. And it was dark. And one of the girls said, Pastor, you can really hear the crickets out here. And you could. It was loud and strange. And she was terrified. But I was also terrified. And so we kept driving a little bit. And the road was getting near. And then I finally saw this sign. And it was the right sign. You know what that right sign did? Well, it, it brought me some joy. Peace of mind. That's what 
the statutes of the Lord do. Ben and I were, you know, going to get away for a few days, and I was reminded about the business meeting that Brother Steve had here last Wednesday night, so I thought, oh, i got to get back for that. And then the funeral last Thursday, so we came back. You know, Louise used to always say to me, she said, if you don't go away, Jim, you don't get away. Very true wisdom from, from the wife. Well, the next day after the funeral, I was reminded of why I was glad that we actually came back. I was told about a man that Alex and I had visited before, tried to visit before, who was about to pass away. And so I went to visit him. And I wouldn't have if I was gone. And I went to visit him. And when I walked in, the nurse looked at me and I said, I'm the pastor. And she said, listen to me, he just wants to die. That's all he keeps saying, he wants to die. And sure enough, when he saw me, he said, I want to die. I want to die. He kept saying it over and over again. I leaned over and I said, I understand. I understand. And I held his hand and I said, but are you ready to die? And he said, I don't know. Are you ready for eternity? And as I went through the gospel and took the time and I spoke of Christ, he affirmed each and every point as we went along. And he was, he was lucid and he was awake. And the nurse, note, the nurse there noted to me afterward that it was perfect timing because in a couple hours, hospice was going to arrive and start on the usual morphine and such. And so we went through the gospel. And thankfully, he affirmed it all. And the next day, the next morning, he was ushered into eternity. This Friday, I'm speaking at his funeral service. And I have to tell you something. I am always, always rejoicing in my heart when I have a situation like that, either meeting a man in the hospital on his last night or speaking at his own funeral. I'm always full of joy that I can sit there. I don't have to come up with what to say. I don't have to invent some fairy tale in my head. I don't need to fret or fear or despair there, that there's no absolute right or proper or good thing that I can say to a person who is in that position. I know exactly what's right to say. You can never give the gospel to the wrong person. Knowing the right road here in this world and for eternity, I'm telling you, it rejoices the heart. I feel the same way when I teach the teenagers on Sundays in Sunday school and have for the past 30-some-odd years. Brother Steve taught that class when I came here at Beacon in those days. I know that when I go before them, I don't, I, oh, I don't know, you know. Now, I'm not saying I don't, I'm not burdened if they're going to listen to it, but I'm not worried. It rejoices my heart that I know I'm giving them exactly what they need. I have a wedding to do, rehearsal tomorrow night, a wedding, wedding on Saturday. And it's amazing to me, if I were to go back, I don't keep like records like some people do. I don't do a journal and all that, but I wish in some ways I had for the past 36 years because it is amazing to me. Brother Sam and I have talked about this often. How many times I have a funeral and a wedding? Funeral, if I have a wedding, there's a funeral. Some people call them the same thing. But anyway, have a wedding, have a funeral. Have a wedding, have a funeral. Have a wedding, have a funeral. <laughs> and, and every time it happens, just like this week, I always see this contrast. These youthful people. And then at the end, it's the beginning and the end. How do you tell these young people 
how the end is going to be like it is with Brother Southey. Glory and victory. How do you know the beginning and the end? Well, I don't wring my hands over it. I'm not at a loss. My heart rejoices that I know what to tell them. And I also know that people are telling them that there is no right and there is no wrong. There's no joy in the heart, therefore, of these young people, of those teenagers or some young adult who's been told ever since childhood that the only real virtue is tolerance. That they can do and believe in any road that they want. And magically they'll end up in a good place. No, they won't. But if you follow this book, you will. In their heart of hearts, these young people suspect that they won't end up in a good place. These that are being fed these lies. And thus, there is anger, there's resentment, and there's a lot of fear. Beloved, do you know why we preach this book and teach this book and love this book? Do you know why that folks in this room will read this book through this year? Just like many did last year and the year before? Do you know why there are young people over there right now? The number one thing we want them to do is memorize. Memorize the words of this book. Because the statutes of the Lord are right. Some things are not right. Some things are gray. But the statutes of the Lord are right. And because the Bible is right, it shows us which direction we ought to go in. Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It's better than money. It's better than food. I wonder how many people actually look at the Bible like that. Better than money. Worth more than gold. Worth more than food. Moreover, look at verse 11. By them, by the statutes of the Lord, is thy servant warned. Yep. I love that line. It's one of the favorite lines in, in all the Psalms. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in keeping of them, there's great reward. You see, not only does the Bible tell us the right direction we're supposed to go on, when we come to the fork, it also warns us about the wrong road and what path not to take. And I would say to every parent here and every grandparent here, to every teacher, every older brother or older sister, what you will never hear from the NEA or Hollywood and every failed and bankrupt social institution, and our, our country is full of those, you sit down with your child. Mom and dad, you sit down with that little one or that teenager or whoever, and you take the Bible with all of the statutes of the Lord, and you say to them without apology, without equivocation, that this is right. And if it says in here that something's wrong, it's wrong doesn't matter if our Supreme Court says it's right. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. You take the Bible and without apology say, this is good and this is bad. If the Bible says it's bad, it's bad. And you say, this is true and this is false or a lie. You can tell them that this direction will be a blessing in their lives, but this other direction will be a curse. And it will rejoice your heart. You know, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The right direction, the happy direction. And I'm not talking about one without trials. We're talking to a group of people who are 
all of us in this room who are familiar with trials and obstacles and pain. I'm just talking about one that's without unnecessary evil and the suffering that that causes because you disobeyed the Word of God. The second thing about the Bible being right and why it rejoices the heart is that the Bible also shows us the right purpose or the right reason. In other words, the Apostle Peter said this, He said that a Christian who knows these statutes can give an answer to every man that asketh him of the reason, right? Of the reason of the hope that is in him. Now, hear me carefully. And I know you know this, most of you, but the reminder is is vital. Outside of this book, there's no reason for us being here. Outside of the, that's why it rejoices the heart. Outside of this book, there is no reason anywhere in the world that's given by anybody in the world as to why we really exist as to why you're here and breathing and sitting up right now. You look at all the statutes of men. All of them. Look at all the books that have ever been written. Protagoras. Man is the measure of all things. That's despairing. Voltaire. Simonides. Aristotle. I don't know who would Plato. Name the person. All of their statutes about the meaning of life and why we're here were wrong. They've been proven wrong, not just different, wrong. So that the greatest minds who've ever lived, some of them were wrong about all of our reasons of life, unless they found those reasons in this book, in the Word of God. That's why most national libraries that exist all over the world that cost millions of dollars, I'm not a big fan of our libraries. I look at my real estate bill that I get every year and I see the libraries on there too. I've never used it but I have to pay for it. I, I wouldn't agree with 99.99% of the books that are in our libraries that I help pay for. But most national libraries like that, they're, they're nothing more than cemeteries for dead books. Old books go out of style. They go out of date. They're born. People get excited about them. They're publicized. They, they sell some copies. They go on the clearance rack, and eventually they totter, and they die because they're written by men. They're statutes by men. But not this book. Beloved, this book is still changing lives. Transforming people. Therefore, giving people the real purpose and meaning of why they exist. Some time ago, I was visiting a brother, Phil Frazier. He's our missionary to the Philippines. He was here on uh, furlough. And we were talking. He said, hey, pastor, guess who gave their testimony in my home church in Tallahassee this week? He said, you need to have her come speak in your church. And I said, who? He said, Ellie Mae of the Beverly Hillbillies. I said, Ellie Mae Clampett? Ellie Mae Clampett who threw Jeff Fro across the room, Ellie Mae Clampett? Ellie Mae Clampett who took care of all the critters? That one? He said, yeah, she's a Christian now. The actress, she got saved And in her testimony, she talks about all of the lies and the emptiness of Hollywood fame and fortune. Isn't that amazing? And I said, you know, God's grace is amazing. But the truth of the matter is, even when he told, as he told me that, I thought there are thousands and thousands and thousands of testimonies by people that were celebrities or war heroes or Nobel Prize winners or U.S. presidents and kings and and queens and musicians and athletes who basically had everything that that man and this world had to offer 
but who all said it wasn't until they came to Christ that they found the answer to what was in here. They all testified to that, the ones who came to the Lord. Several years ago, I was a youth pastor in Knoxville, and I heard that Pete Maravich was, speak, Pete Maravich was speaking in a little um, small outside assembly area in Knoxville. And Pistol Pete, of course, was a childhood hero. He, he amazing, amazing basketball player, ball handler. He has collegiate records that will never be broken. Even before the three-point uh, line, he was, he was amazing at his scoring. And he was the first man ever to sign in the NBA for a million dollars. But his testimony about growing up, being a high school star, a college star, an NBA star, his testimony was sad exceedingly sad, depressed, drugs, alcohol. And he, tell, he, tells, he told about how empty all of it, he said, if I could win this state championship, that would be it, because his dad drove him hard. Nope. College, if I could achieve this, he achieved it. Achieve this, he achieved it. Achieve this, nope. NBA, no again. He turned to drugs and alcohol and and sin, and he talked about the absolute futility of what man offered him to fulfill his heart. And with tears of joy, sitting in these bleachers with my young people there watching him, with tears of joy starting to stream down his face, he talked about the day that he got saved. He called it the day that the hole in my heart was filled. Less than a month after, our teenagers heard that testimony. Still a fairly young man, as you, many of you know, he dropped dead in a pickup game of basketball. Gone, but before death took him, he found the answer to life, the purpose for living. For the first time, he said, in all of his life, without all of that stuff the world offers, he was truly fulfilled and joyful. You know, if we found the right person, or oh, the right person has found us, Christ, then ought we not live our lives to the one who gave us this purpose for life? You know, when Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, he was reminding us, beloved, that there's more to life than eating. There's more to life than just going to work and getting up and going back to work and living and dying. That in fact, the very reason for our lives is to know God. To trust in God, to serve Him, and ultimately to enjoy Him, the Bible says, forever. You know, I don't know about you, but that rejoices my heart. Because that's what's right. That's the truth. I cannot imagine going through life not knowing the reason for being here. Not knowing the purpose for, for being on this planet. You might as well be a horsefly or a slug. What good is it? To be created in the image of God when you don't know the Creator, God Himself. And you know what? It's this book that is right about God. It is this book that tells us the truth about God and the reason why God put us here. The statutes of the Lord are right. Not only does it show us the right direction, where we should be going. Not only does it show us the right purpose, why we're even going here and on these roads. It also shows us another thing. You know, you know, the only thing worse than traveling on the wrong road is not knowing why you're on that wrong road. 
So if we're on the right road, and if our hearts are rejoicing because we know the truth, then we should, be, we should also know that the Scripture helps us to rejoice because it gives us the right relationship. And by that I mean the right relationship that God demands from us. Look at verse 14, would you? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Now let me say this. The reason why the Bible rejoices my heart is because it's the Scriptures that show me what, shows me what's right about how I can have the right relationship with the one who made me. You know, there's only one book that's right. There are lots of voices in this world, as Paul said, so many voices and there's so many books. And they try to tell us how to get right with God. I'm going to say something that, that's very controversial in this day in which we live for Christians and churches. Christians read too many books. I'm dead serious about that. Pastor, recommend the book of the month. Give me three books to read. Christians read too many books. And by too many books, what I mean is they read more books than they read Bible. And there are a lot of books that are written by, in Christian bookstores that are written by men and women that are just full of opinions. This is the book that tells us, this is the one that tells us how to be right with God. Not a bunch of principles about success and better relationship. How to be right with God and therefore right with others. Who better to tell me how to be right with the one who made me, with God, than God himself? You know, if you can imagine for a minute, Larry Fink. He's the founder and the CEO of BlackRock. If you can imagine, Larry Fink coined a phrase. And the phrase is, born again. No one ever used that word ever before, that expression ever before, until Larry Fink said it at a stockholders meeting at BlackRock last night. And if he were to say to an international board meeting, this behemoth of a, of a company he has, if he were to say, I say unto you all, stockholders, you must be born again. Can I ask you a question? What would that statue, statute mean? What, would it have any authority at all? If it was the first time anyone ever heard it, just think about it. Would it have any validity? Would anybody even think that he's sane if he were to say that? Managing $10 trillion doesn't make a man, any man, in authority on God. But you see, folks, it wasn't a man who said you must be born again. It was God who became man. It was God who became a man so that he could tell man how to be right with God. Right? So he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The statutes of the Lord are right because they show us how to have a right relationship with God. One of those statutes simply said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Another statute says, God so loved the world. As you know, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Another statute says, as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. That's a right relationship. The statutes of the Lord tell us from that birth, Becoming a child, from then it tells us how to worship God, 
how to please God, how to hear from God, how to love God, how to glorify God. Wow, beloved, the statutes of the Lord are right. It shows us everything. You know, the epistles have fallen on hard times in New Testament Christianity because, you know, there's a lot of rules in there. It tells you how to be right with God. Those epistles rejoice my heart. They ought to rejoice your heart. When you read what they say about how to live in this world, how to be right with God. The statues of the Lord are right. It shows us the right direction, the right purpose, the right relationship. So I just want to say to all of us tonight and those watching where you are, don't you think we should pay more attention, therefore, to reading and hearing what's right and a whole lot less of what's wrong? Nothing on MSNBC tonight is going to rejoice your heart. Nothing. Zero. Nothing on this year's Oscar night Academy Awards is going to rejoice your heart. Nothing that's done or said. Nothing at Dolphin Stadium is going to rejoice your heart. Trust me. Take my word. Think about it. Nothing in the halls of Congress that's going on right now, these votes, that's all they're obsessed with. Nothing that's going on in Washington is going to rejoice your heart. But the statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. You know, the world resents the joy that believers have. The world resents it. They, they, when I'm talking about the world, I mean people who are in darkness and, do, and actually are antagonistic to this book. They, they resent the joy that Christians have. The faith, who do you think you are, thinking you're right. Nobody can know for sure they're going to heaven. They actually resent someone having enough faith to, to kneel in a, in a touchdown in, in the end zone. Who they think they are cramming it down my throat. But the reason they resent it is the reason for it, is that the, stat, the Bible, the truth, the rightness of this book is what rejoices our heart. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, help us to be faithful to your word. In a world of so many distractions, in a world of so many wrongs, help us to remember, Lord, that your statutes are right. Always right. Right in every way. And it's what rejoices our hearts. And may we have joy that passeth all understanding, rejoicing evermore. Because we trust in your word. We follow your word. We believe your word. We preach and we teach your word. And we sing it and we memorize it. Because we know... In a world full of wrong, this is right. We thank you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.